Football MX Network production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I want to say. A new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's Industry Seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires, Fly Racing, Blends All Racing Motor Oil, Works Connection, Plum Creek Funding, 612 Suspension, Fast Foundry, and Pro Glow. Hey everybody, welcome to Industry Seating. My name is Jason Thomas, I am your host. It's Sunday, we had uh, some MXGP racing today, but otherwise it was a little bit quiet in the, uh, the American motocross scene. We had some rider signings, but today it's all going to be about answering some listener emails that I got in. Of course, most people responded and I appreciate it. Hoping to win the Formula CC helmet courtesy of Fly Racing. So we will certainly get to that. That's an exciting deal. Uh, retail value of around 450 bucks of that formula helmet. It shares all of the technology of its carbon big brother. The, the CC that I'm giving away is a carbon composite version. So we were able to get the retail price down a tiny bit, but it does share all of the technology and safety features of the full fledged formula. Before we get into that, I want to thank the sponsors of this podcast, Pirelli tires, blends all fast foundry, risk racing works connection, ProGlow Bike Wash, Grantstone Boots, Plum Creek Funding, Premier Vapor Blasting of Georgia, and 612 Suspension, and of course, Fly Racing. Thanks to everybody for being involved with this podcast. So let's jump into it. Let's not waste any time. Let's get into some listener questions. And the first one is from Mike McGuire. He's asking about Chase Sexton. Now, Chase Sexton is interesting because if we go back to 20... 19 and the supercross series and it seems like eons ago the world was so much different then but we remember that he was i would say the second best guy in that series i i don't have any problems with saying that austin forkner was the best guy in the series and sometimes the best guy in the series doesn't win the championship that happens forkner blew his knee up at nashville i watched the crash and the whoops it was silly and unnecessary because he was simply trying to set the fastest lap time and time qualifying no real reason to be pushing the edge like he was. Uh, that was not the first time he had done that that season. He had many, many crashes throughout that, that season in time qualifying just because, you know, it's a pride thing and they want to qualify fastest. And that's not something that you should really be upset about. It's just taking unnecessary risk is, is the problem. And it catches up with you. And when you have crash after crash after crash doing the same thing, you have to learn from that mistake. And it, he seemingly didn't. So, Got off on a little tangent there, but the question is with Chase Sexton going from, you know, kind of getting a little bit beat down in some of those races by Forkner. He just Forkner seemed like he was a little bit better to going on to win that series. He bested Justin Cooper in the final couple of rounds, won the series, and then came back in 2020 and defends that championship besting Shane McElrath in a pretty hotly contested series. A lot of drama, back and forth, really good racing. Kind of didn't know what it was going to come down to until the end. And if you remember, like, the first round 
leaving Tampa, I don't think that everybody felt like this was Sexton's series to lose. McElrath kind of ran away with that first one, and then Sexton kind of caught fire there, especially the final few rounds in Salt Lake, and, and he was the deserving champion. Now, the question itself is more about Sexton's mindset and how did he find the edge? You know, how did he go from getting beat down by Forkner in those rounds to winning the championship, then coming back and winning a second championship and now moving to the 450 class and having the speed to win races? As we know, he won the, the final round overall at uh, Paula this, this past October. Now, my answer is going to be a little weird because I don't think he's really gone through any sort of mental transformation. My perception of Chase Sexton is that he's always had the confidence that he's exuding now. I think even as an amateur, he, I don't want to say cocky. I don't, I don't necessarily think it's that. I think he's just been a very confident rider. And at that level, you need to be a little bit cocky, right? You can get overboard with that and have overconfidence. And then, you know, it, it does you harm to your, I think your results. And then also nobody wants to be around you. But I don't think it was necessarily that. I just think he had this quiet confidence in himself, and I, I think he still does. And I would bet that if if I had to tell him to his face, like, hey, dude, Forkner was better than you in, in 2019 series. Unfortunately, he got hurt. I, I think he would argue that, and I think he would try to defend whatever went on, and that, that's okay. I think that's a part of the confidence that he has in himself, and I think it served him very well in his career thus far. So – when you're asking if, you know, he, he found that little edge, which is what uh, the terminology that Mike uses in the question, I don't know that it was anything different. I just think he got a little bit better in his skill set. I think the engine package that Geico Honda brought to him in 2020 helped. He got better starts, which put him in a better position to succeed. And I think it was just the maturation process as well. Because we have to remember that Forkner was a year ahead of him in, you know, turning pro. So you could really see that, uh, that, that Forkner's skills had progressed a little bit more and Forkner was more confident in that 2019 season than Sexton was. Now Sexton's 2020 season was kind of, um, indicative. I don't want to say indicative. It reminds me of what Forkner looked like in 2019. Very, very confident in himself. Felt like he was the best guy. Felt like he should be winning races and I think that's just a year of being older and more mature. And in that series, you, you kind of find your legs a little bit and you grow to understand that you are the best guy and you're supposed to win. And for Sexton, he had the number one plate for a reason. I, I think that in his head, he started to understand that I had, I won this championship. Yeah. Say whatever you want about Forkner. I, I don't care. I am the champ and I'm going to go out and I'm going to go beat McElrath. And then when he's moved up to the 450 class, I think he's taking that confidence with him. Now, a part of that, I think, was in testing this early this summer. I think he showed himself, not only himself, but other people too, that he had the speed to go with Ken Roxon. And Kenny had mentioned to other people that Sexton Speed was really impressive in testing. And I, I think there is a... I don't want to say a showdown, but I think there's going to be an interesting dynamic that is going, going to unfold at that team because that's been the Kenny show for, for many years. And I've mentioned that on this podcast that Kenny's run the show and he's made, he's made the calls and everything has centered around making sure that Ken Roxon was the best Ken Roxon he could be. I don't think they can just worry about Kenny anymore. 
he's going to get a ton of attention as he should, but I think they have to, you know, take Chase Sexton seriously as a title contender and make sure that he has everything that he needs to be the best Chase Sexton that he can be because we don't know how long Ken Roxon's going to be around. We don't know that Chase Sexton might break out and become the star Honda HRC guy. So it's something to watch for. Um, but again, to the heart of this question, I don't necessarily think that Chase Sexton changed anything mentally. I think he's been the same guy ever since he was an amateur. I, I think just his his skill set and the motorcycle and some other things caught up to where he viewed himself anyway. Uh, I, I've just always heard that about Chase. He's been very, very self-confident, almost to a point where it was too much. You know, like he believed in himself more than what was realistic. Uh, but I think that's serving him well, and I think it's allowing him to move up to the 450 class and become a player right away is because he doesn't doubt himself. He doesn't doubt his ability. He doesn't doubt his chances of becoming a 450 winner right away. And, and we saw that, right? He just won his first outdoor season. He won the final round overall. And we saw the first round of his 450 series. He was the fastest qualifier. So we, we should have known that was coming with the speed he exuded right away. So good question. Uh, he also mentioned um, about Austin Forkner. Is he going to kind of go the other way? where he's had injuries and, and a tough run here, is, is that going to kind of go the opposite direction, right? Where he's been the, the confident, the fastest guy, all these things. Is that Are these injuries and these tough years going to take that willingness to, to go all out and win races away? I, I don't personally think so. Austin Forkner's always been a really confident kid as well, and I think when he looks at the state of the 250 class, and I would view it the same way if I was him. When he looks at the state of the 250 class, I think he still feels like he is the class of that field, especially when you start taking away guys like Chase Sexton, you take away Shane McElrath, and you take away Dylan Ferrandis. Those are three you know, heavyweights of the 250 class that are gone. So for Forkner, I think he looks at that as like, okay, well, I felt like I was the best guy, if not maybe the second best guy behind Ferrandis. And you've just removed three of the best guys. So, of course, I'm going to be one of the best guys, if not the best guy. Of course, I'm going to win races and be a title contender. So, I don't, I don't see any reason for him to view that. You know, the only, I guess, possibility would be if the, you know, the injury has any sort of lingering effect. But I, I just don't see it. You know, maybe the first week of riding, you're tentative. But as you get better and more confident, and really just to race at that level, I think once the gate drops, all that stuff kind of goes out the window. Um, so I fully expect uh, I expect Forkner to be right back to his winning winning ways, depending on whichever coast he's on at the first round he's at. So good question by Mike. I appreciate it. Um, but again, I don't think uh, that we're gonna we have seen or will see any huge change out of these guys. I just think they're you know they're super young and they're they're maturing and their their bodies are kind of catching up with uh, with their mindset. Now, a question from Brandon, and this is concerning the motocross of nations, which unfortunately we, we all know we didn't get this year. And for those of you who listen to anything that I'm on podcast wise, you know, that that's my favorite event of the year. I, Steve Mathis and I are travel buddies to motocross of nations each year. And I just can't get enough, even though it's been horrifically tough for team USA in the past few years. I just love that event. It's, it's great. The camaraderie, the patriotism, uh, just the spectacle of it. You get to go to Europe and I love vacationing in Europe. I just think there's so much history and so much to see. And it's a, it's such a nice departure from normalcy. Um, so kind of off track, but 
I, I do love that event, and I cannot wait to get back. I can't remember. Did they announce where the 21 round? I, I should know that. I should know where Motocross the Nations is in 21. But wherever it is, I cannot wait to get back over there. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's France. Hold on a second. I'm gonna look this up while we're uh, while we're talking. Okay, I'm back. I had the the magic pause button. I tried to find it. I couldn't find it anywhere. I saw something about maybe it's going back to Majora in Italy next year. I think they'll give France another shot. That France for Motocross Nations is such a great place to be, and I'm, I was really bummed to not be going there this year. Uh, Steve and I went there. It's a 2016, maybe 2015, 2016. What what a great event that was! Went to go see Normandy for you know D-Day and all those historic things. Uh, so I was really looking forward to that. I, I kind of am hoping we go back to uh, France, but Majora would be would be great as well. Either one of those would be fantastic. But anyway, back to the question at hand. He's asking about the criteria that's used for picking riders for the USA. And he's saying that he doesn't think that we're going about it the right way. Brandon is. He's saying that we should be more focused on consistent starts and sprint speed instead of the best overall riders. Now, I don't know if I can go along with this. And he's giving examples. He's saying, you know, Osborne was not getting good starts and it, it cost him and his ability to get good results. And Eli Tomac, as we all know, his starts have been really suspect, especially at that event. And it cost us results because he wasn't able to move up. And he's saying that we should be picking guys like Adam Cincerulo who are perennially good starters all the time. And they have incredibly good sprint speed at the beginning where if they don't get a great start, they could move through the pack really, really quickly. So I don't, I don't disagree with some of that. Honestly, the biggest problem that we have with Motocross Nations, in my opinion, isn't any of that. It is, one, a very big hesitation on Team USA's part to send, or, or not to send riders, but riders to participate. Guys like Eli Tomac have decided not to go. Adam Cincerello last year decided not to go. Uh, you just go down the list. Ryan Dungey, uh, he went at times. Other times he said no didn't really want to go. I think even in years that he went, I don't think he always wanted to go, but I think he felt like he had an obligation to go. And it, that's just due to timing. Nobody really wants to have to keep training for motocross six weeks past the end of the season. Everybody has switched gears to supercross. The timing of the event for American rider was, was just very, very bad. It has been for, for a while. And I don't think that's anybody's fault. Our series has moved to an earlier end, you know, this year notwithstanding, but end of August, our series was ending, and Motocross Nations was not happening until the very end of September or even into October. That's a big challenge for riders to be willing to sacrifice their off-season, keep riding motocross, and just maintain all of that fitness level. And that, whether they will admit it or not, that hurts them and their rest period and their preparation period and all the things they want to do for Supercross. So it is... It is a compromise for these guys, and you all know how I feel about that event. I would do it in a heartbeat, but not everybody feels the same way about that event. You know, there there are millions of dollars on the line for the Supercross Series, and I can understand if you're looking at it and saying, you know, anything that is going to compromise my success in the following season, I'm not doing. So if you are Eli Tomac or any of these guys, you know, like Adam Cincerello last year was switching to the 450, so he bowed out. But any of those guys saying, you know what, 
I, it's a cool event. I understand that people are mad, but I cannot sacrifice results next year or my preparation or my ability to recover from the season for this event. I just can't do it. I can't justify it for an event that really pays nothing. It ends up usually costing money to the, to the riders because of travel and all these things. Um, so I, I do get it on that side. It, it's tough. It's tough for me to swallow, but, but I do get it. So I don't necessarily think it's our criteria of picking riders. I think the riders we have to choose from just gets narrowed way down. We, we don't get to take our very best possible team very often. That really just doesn't happen. And you could say that Team France has suffered the same fate. You know, the, the battle between the French Federation and Marvin Muscan in some years has cost them riders. Injuries have cost them. Battles over, uh, you know, the Red Bull logo uh, last year cost Tom Vial a spot on that team. So there have been all kinds of drama for other countries as well. But I think when it comes down to it, you still want to take your best rider. You know, whether or not Eli Tomac gets good starts consistently or not, I, I can't imagine him not being a great pick. Now, this summer was weird. You know, we know he won the Supercross Championship, and it seemed like he took time off, and he wasn't his best self. But when he's won three outdoor championships in a row, for me to say we shouldn't take Eli Tomac, that, that's just crazy talk. Like, I, I, I appreciate the question, Brandon, but I, I don't buy it. Um, I can understand the starting thing. But I've, I've also watched Eli Tomac come through the pack like gangbusters at some of these events before, too. Um, so to me, we have a much bigger issue, which is the timing of the series and some teams, namely Monster Energy Kawasaki, not wanting to participate in the event at all because it's expensive. It throws off their schedule. It doesn't make sense for the American calendar. Uh, so to me, those are much bigger problems than our rider choice. If we, if we could have this event, say, on Labor Day, which is not going to happen because that's in the middle of the Motocross the Nation schedule, right? So suiting it for us doesn't make it work for, for the MXGP schedule, right? So that's, that's not a fair uh, compromise either. And I, I don't really have the answer. I don't know what or if ever this will get sorted out. But that's going to be the problem is the time frames is that you're going to have riders that, you know, like a Cooper Webb or these guys where Supercross championships mean everything. That's what they're paid for. That's where their heart is. And if you're telling them like, hey, you're basically putting a month-long dent into your preparation. And, and when I say preparation, that can be rest or that could be just straight up hard work, you know, depending on what their, when their boot camp starts and all those things. But basically a month-long dent into that program overall, they're going to just be like, Nah, that's not what I can't, like, I can't make that sacrifice. So good question. I, I don't a hundred percent disagree with you. I think we just disagree on the biggest problem to team America's losing streak. Um, you're thinking it's rider choice. I think it's, uh, I think it's not having our best team. Our best team may lose, still lose, but you know, let's take last year to Aston, for example, our team consisted of Jason Anderson, Justin Cooper and Zach Osborne. Good team. Not a bad team by any stretch of the imagination, but was it our best team? Absolutely not. There is no way you could possibly argue that that was our best team. We didn't have either champion in either class. We did not have Eli Tomac and we did not have Adam Cincerillo. So right there, end of story, we don't have our best team. We had Jason Anderson who had been injured and really didn't even ride the motocross championship. So 
you know, like there's so many aspects to it that are like, oh yeah, well, why did we expect to, to really do well or, or have any prayer of winning anyway? We, we shouldn't. When you don't put your best foot forward with your best team, you can't really expect to win. We have won in the past, you know, like we, we've had so-called B teams and still won, but that's going back like a decade. You know, the, the series has changed. The world landscape and, and motocross racing has changed. These teams are a lot better than they were a decade ago. You know, the, the gap has, has narrowed. There is really no more talent gap. And you could argue that the MXGP, MXGP series has surpassed us in motocross talent. Now, Supercross is a whole different story, and we are so far ahead of the curve in Supercross, it's not even funny. But that's not what this race is, and, and so we really can't even compare it. So anyway, good question. Uh, we, I think we're just going to have to agree to disagree on that one. Now, Marcos, question here. Um, he's talking about, you know, I live in Idaho and I work for Fly Racing, which is one of the largest moto brands, which is great. I love to see all of the steps forward that Fly Racing has made while before I got here and while I've been here. I'm very, very proud of that. And being in Idaho, it's Idaho's a pretty red state, right? We, we don't have a lot of rules. We don't have a lot of regulations. We can ride on public lands. You have to have stickers and all that, but it's it's a great place to live if you like freedom and you like being able to do responsible things, uh, with your time, you know, you can go hunting, you can go fishing, you can go riding, you can do side-by-sides, you, all the outdoor activities that people love to do that generally would listen to this podcast. Idaho is a great place for that. Now he's mentioning California in comparison, seemingly hates all those things, right? If, if you follow politics, you know, all of the controversy that's gone on with Gavin Newsom and him trying to outlaw, uh, fossil fuel vehicles by 2035. And he's just taking steps to try to close down public lands for riding. And, and everything is kind of going the opposite direction of a place like Idaho. Now he's asking, is that going to continue, right? Is, is California basically just going to shut down to the motocross community, even though it is home to most of the motocross community. And that's really where the contrast comes in because, Motocross is by and large based in Southern California, right? Whether it's Temecula, Murrieta, Corona, Irvine, like there are just countless numbers of motocross companies based there. All the OEMs, right? Almost everything is based in Southern California. Now, you know, Parts Limited, Western Power Sports, uh, there are outliers. Some of the biggest companies, there are outliers. Tucker Rockies based in, in Texas. Um, so it's not everything, but it is a, a huge majority in it. And there is this clear contrast where all of these companies are based there yet it is progressively becoming one of the States that is trying to, you know, um, really damage the sport. And, you know, we, we didn't even know if we we're going to be able to race Paula. Thankfully that happened. But for those of you who have seen the supercross schedule, that's out, you'll notice that California is not on it yet. And I say yet because those TBA rounds make no mistake that they want California to be a part of that. That, that is, I can't say it's fact because it's none of my business and I, I'm not a decision maker, of course, but I would make a very, very large wager that those TBA rounds are waiting for California to kind of poop or get off the pot for lack of a better term and, and pardon my uh, callousness there. But they've got to decide if they're going to allow people or allow vents or, or what's going to happen in California because the other States are already moving forward. Places like Texas, which you, you see there's six rounds in Texas already. 
they've already decided, yeah, we're going to let people, we're going to do it safely. We're going to have social distancing and we're going to let America move forward. Like we're, we're not going to let COVID-19 beat us as a country where California has taken a much more cautious approach. I don't think they have any interest in allowing fans into their stadiums just yet, but maybe, maybe by April, they will change their tune. Maybe a vaccine's out, maybe therapeutics are out and we can safely, and that's all right. Based on opinion, right? I would say we could do it now, as long as you're doing it with, you know, temperature checks in place and do all the right things, right? I don't think that just because a place like Texas is able to, or, you know, Kansas City or wherever, they can do an event safely and we're not having massive breakouts because of these events that are traced back there. Why can't we do the same safe event for California, especially when you're talking about April? So I'm hopeful that we can do something there, but knowing how cautious and knowing the attitude of the, uh, the state governor and state government, the local legislation there, I have my doubts. Now, long-term, he's also asking, Marcus is asking, long-term, are they basically just going to run, you know, motorcycles and motocross out of California? This dirt bike culture that we all know goes on in Southern California, is that just going to be eradicated because of local legislation? And I don't think so. I think, you know, these things are cyclical. um, And at some point, I think you're going to see people push back because there are people, there are tons and tons and tons of people in California that love riding motorcycles. They love riding their side-by-sides. They want to do it safely. They do it responsibly. But if you, if you keep pushing on people and trying to take away their freedoms, at some point they're going to push back and you're, and all these people that are trying to get this done are going to get voted out. That's my real opinion. There's only so far you can push people. And I think we're rapidly approaching that in some areas. Now, maybe the other side wins. Maybe the people that want all these rules in place and, and don't want you to be able to do things responsibly, maybe they get their way. And maybe what Marcos is proposing happens, that everybody's just like, you know what? Screw it. We're leaving California. You guys want to turn this into a police state and we're not allowed to do anything anymore? That's fine. We'll just leave. And we'll, we'll go to a state that doesn't gouge us on, on state taxes and all the things that, that California is already doing. And, and that's happening on a smaller level already. I live in Idaho and the amount of people that are moving to Idaho from California is astounding. I mean, you drive around Boise and all you see is California license plate all over the place. And it hasn't really been accepted all that well. I think, you know, native Idahoans, I think they're called, are, they're a little unhappy that this happening because they want Idaho to stay Idaho. They want this place to, to remain the place that they grew up in. And I think they're scared that, that Californians are going to bring California with them. I don't really think that's the case. I think the people that are leaving California are leaving because they want the lifestyle that Idaho kind of provides. So we'll see. That's all going to play out over the next couple of decades. But uh, the short answer to a very already very long answer is that no, I think at some point there's going to be a breaking point where like people are like, all right, that's enough. We're, we're done with this. All of you legislators get the hell out of here. We're, we're done with the, these rules and the way that you are steering our country and this state. So again, maybe I'm being too optimistic or, or maybe I'm just uh, naive, but uh, I'm hoping that at some point people just stand up and have had enough. So thank you for that question. It's, uh, it's certainly very timely and very relevant. Next question is from Jerry, and he's asking about MXGP. He's a casual MXGP fan, watches on CBS Sports. So, Jerry, first thing I, I would recommend if you 
want to get more involved, check out mxgp-tv. It's hyphen-tv.com. They have an unbelievable amount of coverage from the EMX classes on the day before, the women's classes, every moto, all the, you know, basically every time those guys are competing on the track, they show it. Live coverage, Paul Malin announcing, you know, I will be over there again in 2021. So to become more than a casual fan, I would highly recommend that. Yes, it does cost money, but I'm telling you the coverage is unbelievably good. And they deserve every dollar that it costs because, I'm man, they do a really, really good job showing all the action. But his question is more about uh, the number plates. And I actually thought this was a pretty funny question. Um, you know, he, he's asking, what's the deal? Half the guys have three-digit numbers. Some guys have single digits. Some 250s have, you know, white side white number plates. Some have black number plates. Um, some guys have, you know, sponsor logos on their side shrouds with tiny numbers. It's all over the it's all over the place, and he's not wrong. And I wish I had a better answer, but I don't think they are as hardcore about the numbers that America is. Um, I think they are much more reliant on the transponders, and I think that's really what they go off of. Um, I can't even tell you for sure that they have scores. I don't believe that they do. I've I haven't really paid exact attention to it, like specifically, but I've never seen scorers standing next to the finish line like at an American race. So I, I, I don't think they even use scores anymore. I think it's totally done off of the transponder system. And they have sectors and they have a, a really complex system over there. So I think they trust it uh, more than maybe we do. And so I, I don't think that the numbers really matter so much because, you know, f- really for America, we are really strict about our numbers because if you are a scorer, and my mom did this for a very long time, so I know, they need to be able to see the riders as they're coming by. And sometimes if they're in a big pack, they're, they're looking for multiple um, points of, of vision for the number, right? On the side plate, on the front plate, and then on the back of the jersey. So they, we, America has very specific rules for uh, what you can do and what you can't do with your numbers. They have to, it has to contrast with, like, let's say a jersey. The color of the number has to contrast with the jersey so it, it's viewable from far away. Same thing with the side numbers. They have to be a certain height. And we, we um, you know, it's for for 50 class, it's white numbers, um, excuse me, black numbers on a white background. And the, the 250 class is uh, white numbers on a black, black background. And that's to, you know, be distinctual between the classes. But we have specific rules so the scorers can see them. And that's really what it comes back to. But in MXGP, I don't think that they really care about that. I don't even think they use it. So it's much more of a free-for-all as far as what the numbers are and where they're used and um, how visual they are from far away. So it made me laugh, though, the question, because when you really look at what's going on in their series with their number plates, it's all over the map. I mean, it it really is. Like, there, there seems to be real no rhyme or reason to it. But then when you look a little deeper and realize that they're not really counting on those things to be discernible from any distance, right? It's more of almost a marketing thing where these guys, these, these numbers and their uh, specific way of displaying their numbers has become somewhat of a trademark for them. It starts to make a little bit more sense. So good question, Jerry. Last but not least question here is from Jason. And he's asking about uh, some of these teams, how they lease factory equipment. And Rocky Mountain KTM specifically is mentioned here. Uh, so that team leases their equipment, right? They lease engines, they lease suspension, they lease factory parts. Um, and they have 
basically a, a menu of things that they can lease, you know, slash purchase from, from KTM. They don't have to use everything, right? If there's, if there are small knickknack parts that don't make a huge difference, right? If the, if the riders can't really tell any difference, but they're really expensive to use, then maybe the team would pass on something like that. And, and I've seen it. I've seen that happen where KTM presents an option and the riders test it and they're like, well, I don't, I can't really tell, like, maybe it's better, maybe it's not, but I, I don't notice any, any improvement. And then you look at the item line of what that costs for that part compared to stock. And you're like, okay, well, if it's not any better, like, can we not buy that? Because that's going to save us a ton of money. So that does happen. Um, his question here though, is about how do they do the maintenance on these engines? Who fixes them? Who opens them? How does the, uh, rotation on all that stuff go? And this is something I cover in my VIP program with Rocky Mountain KTM team. And if anybody ever wants to do that, uh, we're going to be doing it again for 2021. But basically, you spend the whole day with me, um, you know, track walk, and we watch the race from the press box or in, in club seats. I don't know what that'll be like for 2021. I'm, I'm guessing we'll just be in our own little group together. But it's a, it's a very insightful look at the entire day. And I'm with you for, I don't know, 12 or 13 hours on Saturday answer all your questions, watch the race together. I kind of, you know, take everybody around throughout the day onto the track into the, the depths of the stadium and all around. And it's just a, a very, uh, up close and personal look at racing. And, and for me, it's just kind of another Saturday. Um, but I think for most people who the extent of their experience is buying their ticket and showing up to the race, it's a pretty pretty awesome day compared to that. Let's just say, um, there's a lot more going on than maybe you would think. And to see the other side of, you know, like I can't promise every time, but there have certainly been times where, you know, guys have been watching film right next to Blake Baggett, right? When, when Blake's breaking down his practice film, one of the VIPs, you know, had a very fortunate experience and is standing right there listening to the, the video breakdown. And, that's not really part of the deal, but stuff like that happens. That's a cool, that was just a very spontaneous, cool experience where, you know, sometimes the riders are having a good day and they're like, yeah, yeah, jump in here. Let's check it out. Um, but yeah, we'll, uh, I, I will obviously share more information about that program as it gets closer and as I get more details, but that's one of the things I cover in that program is how that system works. And basically what they do is, you know, the engines are on a rotation program time-wise and they have so many hours that they are allowed or I say allowed, but they are supposed to put on the engine. And with a, on a supercross day, you know exactly how much time is going on an engine because every minute is scheduled out. So let's say they get, you know, three or four races on an engine. That engine is then taken out of, out of the bike. It's put into a shipping uh, box container, shipped back to KTM. The spare engine that was inside the truck already is put into the motorcycle for the following weekend. That engine is overnighted on Monday, back to KTM arrives Tuesday. It would be serviced Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday shipped back out late Wednesday overnight. So it arrives Thursday at the latest Friday back at back to whatever supercross city is next. And then it goes back into the truck. So really the key there is you always have a, an engine with, permittable hours in the motorcycle. And then you have a brand new, well, I say brand new, but engine that has just been serviced and is ready to go inside the truck as a backup. And that just gets rotated and rotated and rotated. Now, suspension wise, suspension just gets serviced, 
usually on Friday, sometimes Saturday morning at the event. So they always have fresh suspension, brand new oil. Um, so it, it, because that, that, uh, that suspension oil heats up and if it boils, you start to lose performance in it. So that stuff is always brand new every single race. Uh, but as far as the engines go, that's kind of how it works. Um, so what are we allowed to do as far as the team? Uh, not, not a lot. KTM is very, uh, particular with maintaining security of what's going on inside the engine. And that's part of the lease program. So they would ship that engine back. KTM would do all of that work in house with their technicians, and then they would send it back. So the team mechanics do not open the engines. They, I don't know that there are any sort of government secrets, you know, per se in there, but at the same time, KTM wants to keep whatever they have going on a, a secret, you know, that, that, that R and D costs crazy amounts of money to develop. And there's a pretty big turnover rate in the sport as far as mechanics, because a mechanic that could be on that Rocky mountain KTM this year could end up at factory Honda next year or whatever, right? Uh, monster star Yamaha next year. And what they're trying to prevent is just a bunch of secret sharing, right? Oh, they're doing this with their cam or they're doing this with their fuel maps or whatever. All of that time and effort that's spent to develop technology, they're going to do whatever they can to protect it. Sometimes it's, you know, all in vain and, and that stuff comes out over time. It's just really hard to ever keep it completely a secret, but whatever they, whatever efforts they can make to keep the edge that maybe they have developed, it could be something as simple as the fuel map they've developed for the start, right? If you've got your fuel map that you use for a great start in supercross, and when I say great, I mean, G R A T E where they're trying to prevent wheel spin and deliver the best power to the ground and, and rip off of that gate. And if you've watched the KTMs, that's where they've shined, you know, whether it's Cooper Webb or Marvin or Blake Baggett or Zach Osborne on a Husky, whatever the case may be on those starts, they seem to have something figured out and, and they're not going to want to give that away. They're not going to want for anybody else to know how or why they're able to do that. So good question there. Uh, and I guess, I guess it's that time I have to, uh, I have to pick a winner for the formula CC helmet. And I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with, uh, Marcos there. I really liked his question about California because it's timely. There's so much going on with the election and Gavin Newsom's rules. And are we going to be allowed to race supercross in California this year or not? And there are so many people moving to Idaho right now. So that kind of struck a chord with me. Um, but yeah, I don't, man, it's a really powerful question, especially for me and, and the business I'm in. And if you like riding dirt bikes, it should be really important to you as all these state the state laws that are coming into effect for public lands and, you know, bikes being able to run on gas and all of these things. It, it's just crazy the way that the way that people are trying to take away uh, our rights and abilities to do things. So great job, Marcos. Uh, reach out to me when you listen and hear this podcast, and I will get you dialed in with a brand new fly racing formula CC helmet. So that's it for this week. Thanks to all the sponsors again. Pirelli Tires, Blenzall, Risk Racing, Works Connection, Fast Foundry, Plum Creek Funding, Premier Vapor Blasting, 612 Suspension, Pro Glow Bike Wash, Fly Racing, and Grant Stone Boots. I didn't want to get too crazy with the sponsor reads. I think some of that wears some of you out. Um, but I'm going to try to do a little bit more of a focus on each one moving forward, at least until we get back into the season. So instead of beating you over the head with, uh, with sponsor knowledge, I'm going to try to do a little bit of a deep dive 
into each specific company once a week. So that, that's kind of an idea. We have what, eight or nine, probably nine weeks until, uh, until go time. So that's kind of a perfect number for our sponsors too. So I hope that works out for you. And I uh, hope you support all of these great sponsors I have. Um, I really appreciate all of them believing in me and believing in this podcast. And I think we have a lot of really bright things on the horizon for 2021 and hoping they all stick around. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Congrats to Marcos for winning that helmet. We'll talk to you next week. See you.